Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the podcast for, I believe, the third time. Brian McLaren, welcome back. Great to be with you again. Yes. Uh, now you are back home in Florida right now. Is that correct? I am. Yes. Outstanding. Did you guys have uh, did that hurricane affect you guys? I'm about 100 miles west of where the hurricane hit. So no, no problems here. No problem at all. Good. Good. Uh, and you just returned from England. You've been doing the book tour. That's uh, right. That sounds like you've been pretty busy talking about the great <laughs> spiritual migration. I haven't been bored, that's for sure, Luke. But yeah, it's been really a great trip. I did, I don't know, 10 cities in the U.S. and then about eight in the U.K. And then mm-hmm. I'll do about eight or nine more in the U.S. in a week or two. Great. Now, okay, so I, uh, I read the book this last week. I was flying, uh, flying back home from Denver, finished the book, and then I got home last night and I was writing down my, some ideas and some notes from the book for this conversation while the uh, last presidential election was on TV, the, or a presidential debate. And as I'm finishing up my notes, I hear a phrase, the great migration from Donald Trump. Was that a paid plug by you for the book from Donald Trump? So if he endorses my book, I will not accept his endorsement. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, that's sad. So that, so that wasn't, you didn't ask him to do that and it was just by chance that he referenced it. We, we, it. Aren't, we aren't pals. I know it's hard to believe, you know, but uh, we, we, he never calls me, never invites me to any of his own. Yeah. Uh, I, I was assuming because of the, the reference that you were one of those uh, pastors who was in his, uh, I guess not. Oh, his advisory council. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, not, well, that's not you. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I must have been busy on another call when that call came in. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. That is too funny. Well, uh, even if Donald Trump didn't endorse the book, I read it. I enjoyed it. So this is my endorsement. Of that's the great. Book. Well, I gladly accept yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Well, let's, let's jump into the book. So um, you have this line early on in the book that you talk about being either immigrated or deported. Uh, you either immigrated away from evangelical church or you were deported from it. And uh, I was reading that, and there's part of me that I'm like, I, I am a pastor, uh, still I'm a part of the Churches of Christ, and um, which you might know because you came to I know them very well, yeah. I remember hearing you probably 10 years ago at a an event called the Zoe Conference sure. in Nashville. And uh, yeah, but it seems like uh, I don't see so much anymore with uh, evangelical circles. Have you decided where you immigrated or you deported? Which one was it? Uh, well, I mean, you know, years ago, I grew up fundamentalist. I grew up in a very, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, I grew up in a fundamentalist sect that has a lot in common in its origins with the Churches of Christ. It's kind of mm-hmm. the British version of the Churches of Christ. It was called the Plymouth Brethren. Mm-hmm. And years ago, you know, it doesn't take too far to move to the left edge of the Plymouth Brethren. And, um, uh, and a brethren friend of mine said to me, Brian, never leave the brethren. Meaning, you know, don't, don't cut them off. But yeah. if they kick you out, just remember that love is not rude. So you, it's rude to stay where you're not wanted. And um, I've tried to follow that. So I don't cut people off. I, I you know, I, I don't want to cut people off. Uh, uh, but I don't want to, you know, be rude. So, um, but, you know, I, I grew up evangelical. I, I, I mm-hmm. have huge gratitude for my, my background. I, so much good came out of it. 
Do you find yourself uh, still in contact with uh, evangelical leaders or evangelical members who who are still appreciative of your work and still all the time, all the time? What is that conversation like? If you feel like you're persona non grata in that tradition, but there are definitely constituencies within that tradition that sure. that really appreciate you, how do you how do you kind of manage that? Well, you know, years ago, a wonderful evangelical theologian named Stanley Grenz, he was a, a Canadian Baptist, and uh, uh, Stanley uh, wrote a book called Renewing the Center, and he did a kind of brief overview of evangelical history, and he said that evangelicalism has a fundamentalist pole that periodically reasserts itself and does a kind of purge. Uh, and so they purge anyone that they consider to be too far of a certain point, you know. Yeah. And and then what happens is their children grow up, and then they become the next more progressive pur- uh, group that's going to be purged. Um, so I just think this is sort of a, a periodic problem uh, in evangelicalism. And uh, and I think, you know, the Trump campaign really, uh, this, this presidential election, really brings the, the issue to a head. Um, uh, it, it's a little hard to tell what evangelicals really stand for. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the party that was supposed, or the, the, the religious community that was supposedly such a big supporter of family values and so on. You know, here mm-hmm. President Obama was a tremendous family man. What a beautiful family. Uh, none of that counted for anything, you know. So I think there's a sense that evangelicalism has become a political descriptor. Hmm. Uh, uh, and But there's another sense that within evangelicalism, there's always been what Stanley Grenz called this more, cent- this more centrist uh, uh, identity. And that identity is still out there and going strong. And those are the people I hope, uh, you know, that I would be... Uh, friendly with and, and, yeah. and accepted by. So you said that, uh, that, as you would call evangelical, in Texas we say evangelical. Um, whatever you want to, I'm <laughs> sure you're right since you have the background in English. Um, but that term, you said it's a political descriptor. Do you th- what do you think the benefit of a descriptor is? Do you think those are becoming irrelevant? Do you think those have some value? Sh- should we keep them? Should we jettison them? What do you think we should do? Well, I, <clears throat> I think... You know, religious labels like that, they have great value when they're accurate descriptors. But, the other, but it's important to remember that, that religious descriptors also have sociological functions. Um, and they, um, gatekeepers can use those labels to say who's in and who's out. You know, so they, they, they be, have a boundary maintenance function, um, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Uh, but I also think uh, that every every label like that is always changing over time. Even people who consider themselves conservative. Let, let me give you an example. I, I I know I don't look a day over seventy, but I'm sixty. <laughs> and um, when I was a kid, the word evangelical would not have been associated with anti-abortion. A lot of people don't know this, but even Southern Baptists uh, were, you know, very tolerant of abortion. Uh, uh, in fact, abortion was seen as a Catholic issue, which made evangelicals a little less likely to accept it, you know. Um, so the term evangelical has certainly changed in my lifetime. You think about an evangelical like John Stott or 
uh, or e- even you think of Francis Schaeffer, especially early on in his career, who was very big on grappling with philosophy and art and so on. Uh, and, you know, uh, now we have an awful lot of evangelicals who who would not recognize people like Francis Schaeffer or John Stott as being among their number. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's some interesting conversations. We've had a few episodes back with um, Stephen Prothrow, who's, uh, I think, mm-hmm. at Boston, and he talked about uh, the ways that uh, the the left has, a lot, anyway, how the church has taken on issues uh, that today we'd be shocked at how the church has picked them up, such as the abortion yeah. issue. Yeah, um, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, again, uh, all of these issues are, are important, Um but I just think we have to be careful about the way that we can be used by any political party as an easy way to grab votes. You know, Mm -hmm. I think one thing that this election has shown uh, in many quarters is that there are an awful lot of politicians who want to win at any cost. Um, And, uh, and this is deeply troubling for those of us who feel that we need a moral core and that there's, that there's, uh, that there are causes and values and commitments that are more important than, uh, than just winning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, um, we'll leave the politics to someone else. We'll let that, uh, another that's podcast good. figure all that out. So when you talked about your immigration or your, or your deportation, whatever you want to uh, call that, I, I loved how you came back to that at the end and you talked about your critics and I've always been fascinated with the way that people have responded to criticism because I feel like that says so much. And let me read one quote that you have uh, towards the end of the book. You say, my greatest danger lay in how I would react to my critics. And my greatest enemies were the immaturity, pride, fear, and insecurity within me. And you reference this uh, Serbian bishop uh, talking about how enemies are really just cruel friends. And it, it, it reshapes how... I would want to initially respond to criticism that I receive. How did yeah. you get to that place? What, what enabled that light to go off in your head? Well, I'm not a fighter, you know, by nature. I'm, I, I don't like fighting. Um, and I certainly wouldn't have chosen to be controversial. That's uh, just not my, my makeup. Uh, you know, when you're a pastor there's always somebody who thinks they could do a better job than you. (laughs) And, um, and sometimes you actually make big mistakes. And I made a few big mistakes as a pastor and you have to admit them and accept them. And then um, very often you have to deal with people who think you made a mistake when you don't think you do. So just the job of a pastor, I think forces you, what's the old saying? You have to have the, you know, the heart of a shepherd and the hide of a rhinoceros or something like that. Um, I, I don't know that I ever really developed a thick skin in that way, but I do think criticism can force you to develop some of the spiritual disciplines where you go inward and you say, look, I, I have to stand before God. I, I remember years ago hearing a quote from Abraham Lincoln when he was leaving office Uh, where he was thinking about leaving office and he said, I've tried to conduct myself while in office so that when I leave it, though I have lost every friend in the world, I will still have a friend within me or or something like that, you know, the the need to have personal integrity. Um, But I I also think uh, what what happened to me that had such a profound effect, many people would know the name Dallas Willard and 
uh, many years ago, Dallas handed me this uh, this old fashioned technology. Uh, it was called a, a, a ditto machine. <laughs> it was this old. It was before Xerox. You know, he had this, and he had this prayer that you mentioned from uh, from a Serbian Orthodox bishop that was about criticism, and he just gave it to me. He said, "I have a feeling you're going to need this." Huh. And, it might be helpful. Well, I, I stuck that on my desk, and there was a period of time early in my career as a writer uh, where I, I, you know, just prayed that prayer day after day after day um, because I had never had to cope with such criticism before, and I, I just needed, I needed help. I needed God's help, and I needed wisdom beyond my own. Hmm. Well, I, I love that, and. Uh, that's a great prayer that you quoted, and there's no way I could pronounce the guy's name, so I, I would like to hear you try at some point. But uh, yeah, it's it's Nikolai Velimirovich, I think is how you say it. Well done on that. Well, I, I'm going to hold on to that one. I'm sure I'll go back to it multiple times. <laughs> yes, it it really helped me. And and if people are interested, I I you know quote um, most of it in the book, but I also give a link to where people can get the whole thing online. Yeah, you had a, you had a couple of big chunks of it. So that's. Um, that's really good. Uh, it's also good how much you quote Richard Rohr in the book. That that warms my heart. Richard Rohr is uh, one of my favorite people in the world, so I appreciate that. Um, I, okay, so you have, uh, early on in the book, uh, this thing you say is the big question, which is, what is your trajectory or what are you moving towards? And, okay, so let's say, was it 10, 15 years ago uh, when a new kind of Christian came out? I, I don't remember. Uh, yeah, in fact, it was uh, 15. 15. And so it, it seemed like that book opened you up to a whole new conversation in terms of uh, an audience I was listening to you in ways before. Did you have any idea what trajectory you were moving towards when that book first comes out? No. You know, I, I, my first book came out in 1998, and uh, I, I felt I had something I needed to say. I kind of thought when that book came out, I would lose all my friends. Really? <laughs> um, and and what happened? I lost a few, but uh, a lot of people came out of the woodwork and and basically said, "Gosh, I thought I was the only one having questions like yeah. this." And and those conversations really formed the backdrop for writing a new kind of Christian, a new kind of Christian, in two thousand one. And um, again, when I wrote that book, I I I wrote it with a lot of fear and and trembling. Uh, now I think uh, you know a lot of people. Uh, people read it, and, and you know, the thing that I think a lot of us forget is that you know there are people turning fourteen or fifteen or seventeen every day, mm-hmm. and uh, they grow. They're growing up in churches that were exactly like churches were when I was growing up in the nineteen fifties uh, and sixties, or when people are growing up in the eighties and nineties or whatever, and they're having the same kind of coming of age experience. So. Yeah. Uh, but I, I wasn't really thinking about that then. I was just trying to wrestle into words some of the struggles that I and a lot of people I met were having. Mm-hmm. Well, your trajectory has brought you to a place where this book, one of the central themes in it is earth care. And going yeah. back to that, I don't know why I'm going back to that Zoe conference for a second time, maybe because I'm going to that in two weeks, um, the one this year. But when I first heard you uh, that that whole uh, weekend, you were talking about care for the earth, and that is yeah. that has become um, you know this book. I, I feel like the last time, uh, the last book, the um, oh, I forgot the title of it. Uh, come on, help me out. What was your last book title? 
uh, right before this, we make the road there by it is. walking. We've talked about it. Yeah. It's a good one. I've read it. Um, but it seems like that's been a major theme of your work uh, over the last 10 years. Yeah. Why do you think this has not been as much of an issue with the church, especially, uh, say, five, 10 years ago? Now, obviously, it's becoming more of a forefront issue. But why do you think this is uh, groundbreaking news for some people that this is a big deal? Well, again, I'm sad to say, Luke, a lot of it comes back to politics um, because, uh, uh, you know, we've got one political party that exerts huge influence in uh, many of our churches that still says that either uh, climate change is a hoax or that it's not caused by human beings. You know, it's it's a kind of denial of the science. Um, And... uh, and, and the irony is, when you bring this up, a lot of people say, oh, you're being political. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the, this is the problem. You know, if, if a person stood up against racism in the early 1800s, somebody would have said, oh, you're being political. Mm. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, if the struggle against slavery was the great challenge of the uh, 19th century, and if, if issues of race and uh, you know, continuing grappling with race was a huge issue of the 20th century. It's, I think, the global issue of the 21st century is is going to be how we live wisely with the earth. You know, as Christians, we would talk about how we have a wise stewardship of the earth or how we would engage in reverent creation care, exercising the care for the earth that the Creator would like us to uh, to show. Yeah. So I'm a pastor of a church uh, here in Austin, and one of my hopes is that the church that I'm currently a part of would be a welcoming place for people on either side of the aisle, Republicans or Democrats. Yeah. How how can pastors, how can church leaders talk about the importance of you know the first command of the Bible, basically, take care of the earth, um, without yeah. falling into just, oh, well, you know, he's being left, and f- make the people from the right feel excluded from the conversation? Well, here's one of our great challenges. Does an identity as a Christian challenge a person's political identity? In other words, does Christianity just have to sort of fit in around the edges, let the political parties stake out the essential moral ground, and then religion just enhances or adds or serves as a chaplaincy to existing political structures? Or is the gospel of Jesus Christ actually a challenge to all political structures? And and um, and I, I think it's the latter. You know, I think uh, I think what Jesus was about when when you proclaim the kingdom of God, kingdom is a political word. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I have no problem being political. To me, the issue is whether we're being partisan. And if by partisan we mean, are we letting party leaders somewhere do our thinking for us? Are we subcontracting out our conscience? to other people. And I'm certainly against that. That's, we have to be against that. But I also think the way that political parties, both Democrat, Republican, and other parties typically work is they create wedge issues that then they can use to try to you know, get more and more percentage points up for their votes. Well, we as Christians don't want to do that. We want to welcome, just as you said, Luke, I love how you said that. We want to make room for everybody. Um, and In that way, I think what we ought to do on the environment is we ought to start by saying, 
God loves creation. There's no doubt about it. God cares about the grass and God cares about the trees and God made this earth. This earth is precious to God. And so we should join God and God's love for the earth. To me, it, that's so hard to avoid if you want to have any attention to scripture and any attention to the teaching of Jesus, uh, th- then you can't avoid that. And that's just, that's just Christian. Yeah, you know? I love the line of, it, yes, we're political, but no, we're not partisan. Like That's a very good distinction, and I really appreciate that. And in this book, you reference uh, Tom Wright as someone uh, whose work that you appreciated, and uh, clearly people who listen to the podcast are big fans of, uh, of Tom Wright. And so he's done a lot of work about the new heavens and the new earth, and um, his work has been very uh, uh, perspective-shaping for many people. And so you have, uh, on the one hand, uh, I once heard a uh, well-known evangelical pastor say, you know, I believe God's going to, we're going to fly away and God's going to destroy the earth. And so, of course, I'm driving a, a, a big SUV because I don't care. And so you have one perspective yeah. and then you have the other perspective that says, no, God's going to come back and redeem the world. And so both of them have the understanding that something's going to happen to the earth in the eschaton. And so how do you wrestle with that understanding of, there's going to be redemption for the earth at some point. So does what I do right now, taking care of the earth really have significance? Yeah. You know, um, Luke, in order to answer that question, well, I would have to be really honest and say that I don't follow any of those kind of eschatological approaches. In other Mm -hmm. words, I'm not motivated by saying, I think that God's going to destroy the earth any day or, you know, that, I, like I, I don't I, that that line of reasoning just doesn't work for okay. me for a whole lot of reasons that we don't have time to get into probably, but what does work for me is to say um, the Bible upholds wisdom and one of the characteristics characteristics of wisdom is paying attention and listening to wise people. You know what is the saying in Proverbs? In the abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. Mm-hmm. Well, if all of the people who study this the most are are telling us that the way we're living with the earth is unsustainable and will create a much worse future for our children and our grandchildren, to me, that's just a matter of wisdom. And the opposite of wisdom is foolishness, to ignore the counsel of our wisest uh, leaders in this. And a lot of evangelicals don't know this, but many of the leaders in the whole climate movement are committed Christians and evangelical Christians that the head of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the largest scientific project in the history of humanity. In other words, more man hours of research have been put into this than any other project in history. Um, The head of that panel was Sir John Houghton, who's a committed evangelical Christian. Um, I was just in England last week, and the head of climate change research for for England uh, was at one of my lectures, a committed Christian. Um, So, you know, when people reject the, the, the wisdom of, of intelligent, smart people on this, you know, you don't need eschatology. You just need wisdom mm-hmm. to, to, to know the right thing to do. That there. makes sense. Do you, do you think you can have, uh, like, Tom Wright's eschatology and still have care for the earth? Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the reasons I think Tom is so articulate about that eschatology is because instead of giving us an escape escapism and instead of making us irresponsible, uh, it, it calls us to responsibility. That's one of the things that's really in favor of, of that eschatology. Um, 
so I, I'm, you know, it, I, I'm just speaking personally. No, that, yeah. th- that's not what has honestly been my primary motivation uh, to care about the earth, partly because I grew up with the left behind dispensationalist eschatology that taught me not to care about the earth. So my deep concern for the earth just came through other roots. Um, if you, someone were to ask me my eschatology, I would say it's a participatory eschatology. In other words, I believe that God calls us to actually participate in the unfolding of the future. And, and I certainly believe that everyone who does wrong will, have, you know, will be held accountable. And no, no good and kind and loving deed will go unrewarded. I, I, I believe that in the end. So that certainly adds to my motivation to care for the earth. Um, but uh, uh, to me, you, you know, people uh, often talk about they're concerned about a slippery slope. And I think one of the things we have to realize when it comes to care for the earth, we slid down the slope hundreds of years ago and we're trying to climb our way back up again. We have theologies that were developed during the Industrial Revolution to justify the exploitation of the earth, just as we had theologies that justified the making of slaves and the perpetuation of of segregation and apartheid and things like yeah. that. Some people assume that the slippery slope when you start having these kind of conversations is that your gospel gets too small, where you just care about just caring for the earth, and that that's the whole message is reduced just to that. Mm. Do you, how do you respond to a criticism that says, well, earth care is a gospel that's really too small? That you're, you're, oh you're missing, the, which is ironic since you're talking yeah. about, you know, the whole earth, but. Sure. Well, first of all, the only thing I could imagine, the only reason I can imagine people saying that is if you said, I care about the earth and nothing else, you know, I've never met anybody who talks that way to me. Um, and just even if you only if even if you only did care about the earth, here's the thing. In order to save the earth from the kind of destruction that human greed is perpetuating upon it, is inflicting upon it. Um, you have to deal with human greed. Well, human greed is a matter of human values. Human values are a matter of the human spirit. So if you care about the earth, you've got to care about human spirituality. You know, you've got to care about virtues like self-control, virtues like wisdom as opposed to foolishness and greed. So um, ironically, if you care about the earth, you're going to have to care about the human soul. Uh, whereas a lot of these people who only talk about, you know, like that, the, the guy who says the God's going to destroy the earth. Uh, I've heard exactly that kind of rhetoric more times than I care to remember. Uh, you know, isn't it ironic? They care about going to heaven, but they really don't care about the poor. They really don't care about the planet. They really don't care about, you know, human suffering and so on. So I'd say there's the small gospel that we should be concerned about. Yeah, yeah. And so you've ta- you talk about in the book about evangelism, uh, a new kind of evangelism, to steal your language. Mm-hmm. You said before your understanding of evangelism was converting people to the one true religion, which of course would be your religion. Uh, but mm-hmm. now evangelism, and I quote, is inviting people into earth care, building communities, seeking first the kingdom of God and justice for all. So now it's a kind of evangelism inviting people to a more holistic uh, sense of redemption. How do you think that changes how people interact when that's their understanding of evangelism? Well, let me say, Luke, that, I mean, if I were to define evangelism in a theological sense, I would say evangelism is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And the good news of Jesus Christ was that was a call to repent, which means to have a deep rethinking about everything about our lives, a, a radical restructuring of our values and our understandings. So repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God means uh, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So ironically, that escapist eschatology we're talking about is a rejection of the actual gospel of Jesus. It's saying we want to have an evacuation plan to get our souls to heaven when the gospel, uh, Jesus' gospel of the kingdom is about God's will being done on earth. It's a transformation plan rather than evacuation plan. Um, So, uh, uh, you know, in that sense, I want to proclaim that good news that Jesus proclaimed, a call to repentance because of the good news mm-hmm. that God is at, at work in the world to bring about, uh, th- to help us individually live the kind of lives we're supposed to live. This was what Jesus called abundant life, as well as uh, the kind of social relationships where we love our neighbors as we love ourselves and where we care for this beautiful earth that God has created. And has this understanding of evangelism based on the proclamation of the kingdom of God, has that been what has undergirded your ability to have interfaith uh, work and collaboration? Sure. So um, if, if I am going to be involved uh, uh, loving my neighbors, and if my neighbor is Muslim, then that means I have to love my Muslim mm-hmm. neighbor. Uh, uh, if my neighbor is atheist, I love my atheist neighbor. Uh, whatever, you know, to love your neighbor suddenly means that you, you don't draw the line, oh, I only love my Christian brothers and sisters. No, the call is to love my neighbors, whatever their uh, faith tradition. And, um, and, and Jesus, you know, gets pretty specific when he tells us that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. So that means... How would I like my Muslim neighbor to treat me as a Christian? Well, I'd want them to be respectful of what's precious to me. I would want them to to be curious about what my actual beliefs are. I would not want them to hold to, to have stereotypes about me based on what someone else told them Christians were like. I, and I just want to extend exactly those uh, uh, expressions of love and respect uh, to others. Yeah, that whole do unto others as you would have them do unto you really makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, boy, that, that Jesus, he was a pretty smart guy. He's on to he? something there. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> as a pastor, of course, I'm hearing this going, okay, uh, well, what do you think about church? Because I'm a big church guy, and you're talking about this trajectory of where we're going, and we have this you know, concern from the earth, and our evangelism is inviting people to participate in this, uh, along with other things. Um, and so I get to the section where you talk about, or, or you have this line that vit- uh, vital institutions and vibrant movements are necessary for human thriving. And you talk about the value of church, and then my thought is, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. Thanks for giving some love <laughs> to that. So how do you balance, okay, you need these movements, but you also are respecting that institutions have been participatory in movements before. Uh, so how do you see the interplay and how do you see the involvement of the church sure. in this? Well, I, I'm glad you're bringing this up, Luke, because the last third of the book, as you know, is about, uh, in some ways, it's a theology of communities, movements, and institutions. And um, Unfortunately, I, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I, I, I think a lot of us have assumed that the church is an institution, uh, and that's all it is. Uh, I actually think you could make a case that uh, local churches are actually, you could think of them as movement cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and at the very least, we, we might say that churches are both institutional and movement-oriented. Um, when they become only institutional and they lose their movement focus, I think we, they, they become stagnant. We get all kinds of problems actually living out the gospel. Um, in, in the book, I, I talk about six characteristics of, of vital social movements. And after I learned about these, I, I remember sitting on a plane just reading the gospels and started to see what Jesus was really doing was he was building a movement. Um, for example, remember when Jesus says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name. Well, there aren't many churches of two or three that would really work, but every movement starts with two or three people. And, uh, and so the power of a small group of people who are ready to make a difference, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, that to me is what could be a very, very exciting dimension of church life. And you mentioned the earth before, uh, Luke, and that this is something for you as a pastor. You want people to develop a healthy and, and uh, appropriate love for the earth in your, your congregation. This is where local congregations can play a vital role. I have a friend named Ched Myers who talks about something called watershed discipleship. And one of the smartest things that I think every church could do is they know their street address, but they could learn their environmental address uh, both for their church building and for all of the homes uh, of the families who live in the church. And part of being Christians then would mean showing God's concern for, for your actual you know, watershed, your actual environmental address. Very few other groups are doing it, and it would sure be great if more of our churches now, did. Now, I, of course, am very well-read, so I know what that means, but hypothetically, if someone's listening and they don't understand what the phrase <laughs> environmental address is, what would you tell yeah. these unenlightened people? So, um, th- is there a river that goes through, uh, that goes through Austin? Yeah, uh, <laughs> no. um, now I'm going to feel bad because I think I got it. There's a bunch of lakes, Lake Austin, Lake Travis, Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there, so there are streams that run into those lakes, mm-hmm. and eventually, I'm going to guess that those lakes, you know, maybe it, I don't know if they, the Trinity River, I guess, goes through yeah, Dallas goes and makes its way down. Yeah. So whatever river it is, Mike, there's the Brazos River mm-hmm. down that way, and whatever the river would be, um, your environmental address is the water that runs off of your roof goes down into the soil, maybe runs across the top of the soil, ends up in a stream. That stream runs into another stream. It runs into a river. That river eventually makes its way, in your case, to the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so the watershed is uh, all the people you're connected to because water runs off your roof mm-hmm. into the same uh, bodies of water. And what that means is uh, one way to say the, the golden rule is to say, Due to those downstream from you, oh, yeah. as you would have those upstream due to you, you know, because we're all connected. Now, it's not just water. We're also connected by air. And so if, you know, if you are burning toxins, you know, and then everybody downwind from you suffers from what you do. And so this is just part of our way of understanding how we're all connected. Yeah. Uh, and if you think of it this way, um, uh, if, if we can be responsible for caring for this earth where we are, that's a great start in, in spreading this responsibility that we need to see globally. Oh, that's good. And I've got a friend who's a longtime water management person for the state of Texas, and I'm sure I'm going to get an email from him 
about this. Well, I, but really, very, very few people are paying attention to this. But, you, you know, you, this podcast could get people thinking about it. If you go online and look up uh, Watershed or Environmental Address, there are actually websites you put in your zip code and it'll show you who's upstream from you, who's downstream from you. And it's really worth learning about. You know, I, I live in Southwest Florida now. So um, uh, about 70 miles from me is a place called Lake Okeechobee. And Lake Okeechobee is this huge big lake in the middle of Florida. When we, that hurricane came through a couple weeks ago, you know, huge amounts of water, overflows Lake Okeechobee, goes down a river. Well, farmers that put chemicals into the soil 80, 90 miles away, goes into that lake, goes down the river, and washes down the coast. And uh, a beach near me had huge numbers of dead fish. And that was directly showing how we're all connected, yeah. you know. And this is a way that I think responsible, intelligent, wise Christians begin to think. This is what it means to love our neighbors, to be to be aware of how what we do affects other people that we're connected to. Oh, that's to. good. Yeah, that's very helpful for uh, so many of us who get caught up in thinking that we're independent and we're on our own and we don't need and we don't affect other people. And yeah, that, that's great. Uh, one of, one of uh, our very best living Christian thinkers in the country, I think, is Wendell Berry. And Wendell actually defines a community as a group of people who are bound together by dependence on the same environment. And this is, this is why there's a local community, a local environment, a national community with a national environment, and then a global community with a global environment. Yeah, oh, that's good. Okay, I want to jump to something else. I, I, I want to get your take on this. So you talk about the different, uh, like a one through five scale about how a 5.0 version of God. And so you use a metaphor <laughs> yes. and uh, as a father of small children, I get it. Like when you're, when you're one, you interact with your parents one way and we become toddlers and then eventually they're, they're teens and adults. And then, so you have this, you know, one to four and eventually you get to five and five is this inclusive God that um, maybe you would, you could or like attach it to the idea of globalism, tying this all together. And so the basic idea is over time, people have progressed to different ways of understanding and interacting with God or the concept of God that they have. And so I've always wrestled with this idea of, are we really moving forward? Because sometimes I hear people mm -hmm. say, well, no, 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 uh, we're just as bad now as we used to be. And so they would say, you know, years ago we had slavery. Well, guess what? We have slavery today. Years ago we exploited uh, the natives of this land, and now we exploit the actual land itself. So we're not moving forward. And other times I want to say, but yeah, we're moving forward on so many different issues. Um, mm. It seems like undergirding this idea of going from God 1.0 to God 5.0 is the idea that we are progressing. How would you articulate the idea to someone who's uh, a little bit of a skeptic about the idea of progress? Yeah. Well, first, it's Luke, it's a really, really great question. Um, and uh, no matter how you answer that question, there are certain dangers. OK, so uh, let me try to give an answer. And then if you want to follow up with anything, we, we certainly can do that. Um, by almost every indicator, uh, humanity is better off than it was 500 years ago. You know, for example, the fact that you and I could take a shower this morning, you know, w the fact that we don't have teeth rotting out of our mouth, the fact that we don't have intestinal parasites, not a pleasant thought, but, you know, to realize that 500 years ago, intestinal parasites, rotting teeth, and really smelly people, you know, that was the norm. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I, you know, here's a, another example. 
when I was a boy, um, there were only three or four television stations. Now, I'm not sure we're better off with 70 <laughs> television stations, but, you know, there were, let's say, four TV stations. And on Saturday afternoons, they always played movies. And the movies they played in the 1960s were mo movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. When I was a boy, virtually any Saturday afternoon, you would see a movie where a man whacked a woman. Uh, and it wasn't the bad guy, it was the good guy who whacked a woman. Because in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, it was very, very common for men to hit women. And, uh, uh, and what happened is, in the years since then, it's become so unacceptable for men to hit women, although the groping of women has had a, a, a comeback, and I'm just disgusted by how many people are willing to sort of defend that, but that's another yeah. whole subject. Uh, but uh, since those years, it's become so unacceptable that nobody shows those movies anymore. And as a result, people don't even realize how bad things were in the past. Anybody who says that, oh, we haven't made progress I'll, tell, I'll, I'll just tell you a book to read. There's a book called The Half Has Never Been Told. Every American, especially every white American, should read The Half Has Never Been Told. It's a detailed history of American slavery. And if you want to see what, especially for people in the South, to see what was happening in the South between 1800 and 1865, you know, this is really yeah. important. So we have made a lot of progress. But here's the danger. We still have a yeah. long way to go. And I think our progress, you're absolutely right. We can take three steps forward and then two steps back. We can take three steps forward and ten steps back. And human beings, human cultures at various times have had major relapses and regressions. And that's one of our great dangers. If, if people uh, don't want to go get that book, they get your book and you have the section about the doctrine of discovery. Yes, and yes. And that in itself will make you... I, I was reading that and I was just... I was, I don't even know how to describe how I felt like I was very disgusted and perplexed and just ashamed yeah. of what I have now because of what had to happen or what did happen to other people. Yeah. Um, so you, you read that stuff and go, well, yeah, that, we're moving forward on that. And um, so, But, but we, we have a long way to go and the possibility of losing ground is always very, very real. See, that's uh, coming back to our political theme conservatives always want to conserve the gains we've made, which is smart because we can go backwards, you know. We have to conserve the gains we've made. And progressives are right to challenge us to greater and greater progress because we still have a long yep, way yeah. to go. Yeah, I think there's definitely benefits of both. Now, uh, oh, you have this quote from uh, Gutierrez who says, conversion is a permanent process in which very often the obstacles yes. we meet make us lose all we had gained and start anew. But like, I, I love the idea. It's, it's this process. And let me, as we close, I know we got to go, but I love this one quote of yours. So I'm going to read it to you, which I don't know how you feel about me saying this is a great line and then me reading it to you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, so this is towards the end of the book. You say, the way of love, then, is the way of annoyance, frustration, disappointment, unkindness, need, conflict, humiliation, opposition, and exhaustion. No one would choose it if love weren't, in the end, its own reward. That's good. That's a good line. Well done. Well written. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I have a feeling I could write that line because I was a pastor and I have a feeling you resonate with it because you're a pastor, because 
in some ways, pastors are uniquely called to live a life of love in a real concrete community, and we experience uh, the uh, agony as, as well as the yeah, ecstasy. Yeah, I think the reason my wife liked it so much is because she's been married to me for so many years, and maybe that's, <laughs> that's her touch point. Okay, the book uh, is on sale now. It is The Great Spiritual Migration. Uh, go get it, people. It's a good one. Brian, thanks for your time. Thank yeah. you so much. Great being with you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.